recording. Good morning. My title today is, Would You Like to See the Lord Today? After I wrote this out, it kind of almost sounded like you want to meet your maker. It's usually a threat. Um, But this is about seeing the Lord, and all of us desire to. And God has made it so that you can before you actually see him. Uh, It makes me think of the difference between a photograph and a reality. When you say a beautiful place, you look at a photograph or a brochure, uh, you're seeing a two-dimensional picture, uh, obviously a beautiful one and and makes you want to go. And speaking of places to go, that's my wife and Maggie in Maui. at, uh, yeah, so that was our, our balcony for a week, thanks to the foxes. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, but it doesn't do justice, right? Picture, it brings memories and such, but it doesn't actually give you the experience. And what the difference, what's the difference is three-dimensional sight instead of two-dimensional. Uh, you're in the picture, not outside the picture. Smell, taste, touch. All your senses are involved. It's an actual experience, which a picture can't give you. But why? So the further question is, we're told this, why can we actually see Christ Jesus without actually meeting him? And we say the, the scripture draws a picture of him, but it's more than that. It's more than a two dimensional picture. It's more than actually being outside of him. And think about like uh, a favorite character you have in a story or a movie. Um, You know, like what, how can you, what is your experience with that character? Uh, It's a two-dimensional thing. You're outside of them. You may love the character, but you know, it's, uh, it's not personal and it's not intimate. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, this actually becomes a reality, and, and a reality of that we actually see him before we see him. Now, today in our main passage, we're going to see what happens when he does actually come to earth again at his second coming, and there's a lot of things that happen, and one of the reasons for that is his appearance. He appears. There's no mistaking the fact that that is the literal, physical, visible Son of Man, Son of God that has come to earth, and a lot of things happen because of that. Well, it actually happens to us, too, when we see Him. If you actually see the Lord, or, you know, in, in, I mean, in relationship, like, like someone in your life that you have a deep personal relationship with in which you've shared life and and desires and and everything and you have this intimacy this tangible connection it's a relationship and without seeing the lord he actually does this for us and it's a supernatural way that he does it we're regenerated we're actually being regenerated in Christ we're made for this like your heart, when your heart sees truth and sees Christ, it knows it. And so an unbeliever can't do that. 
But for us, it is. The truth of the Scripture becomes reality to us, a tangible reality. And that's a supernatural process because the Holy Spirit's within us. The Word is life. The Word is alive and powerful. It's life itself. And in no other, like in a story, a character is not alive, but in the Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so, with the Word being life, when we know this Word in the manner that we should, we enter into a three-dimensional life that's tangible, that we can touch, see, taste, smell. And then He becomes our reality. It's all a supernatural process. And that's the promise. And it's a wonderful promise. So we're going to see that. We're going to look at the Lord's second coming. Uh, start looking. We'll be looking at that all week. Uh, the second coming of our Lord and everything that's around that. And today we'll be looking at the presence of the Lord and focusing on uh, on that particular aspect. So we'll, let's open up in prayer and uh, let's then we'll sing and get into our message. So let's um, thank God for our opportunity to be together and to learn his word to thank him for his word, for his grace and forgiveness and his love. Uh, And uh, with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in your word. Thank you that through your living word that we can see the one who is the written Word, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became alive to us, and as we see and study your Word, Father, and obey it, we see our Lord. How you have done this supernaturally in us. We are so grateful for it, for its reality. And may we, Father, despite any difficulties or hardships that we face, continue to keep our eyes on him whom you have revealed and given to us as a gift. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
All right, let's uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and here's our main passage, which um, I had a feeling that this uh, paragraph that we're looking at may run a little more than a week, um, and it's because there's so much here, that um, this paragraph in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians uh, looks ahead to eschatology or the last days. And in it, we have some key ideas. I gave you this uh, last Sunday. First, do not be deceived. That is how he starts off. Don't be deceived by how things are going to happen. And, of course, that would um, expand into all things in life. That, As we saw this week, that the, Lord, uh, the Satan and the kingdom of darkness, while they're being suppressed or restrained by God until the time comes when they're not, which would be the tribulation period, that um, their main form of attack is lies and deception. And so they can control a soul. As we know, with wrong perspective and wrong thinking, our souls can be controlled, so don't be deceived. The attack against you, therefore, is mental or psychological, generally not physical. I think in some cases it is. Uh, As Paul mentions in the first letter to Thessalonians, he said, we wanted to come to you, but Satan prevented us. Now, how he doesn't give us details on how Satan did that, but that's certainly a kind of a, a, an attack in a physical way that Paul wasn't able to go. But generally, we don't see that. And the warnings given to us throughout the scripture are mainly around lies, false teachers. Those are the ones that are mentioned by the apostles and the writers a lot. Um, and the same thing with Israel in the Old Testament. The problem was believing lies and worshiping idols. You know, it's all happens in the soul. So the attack against you is mental and psychological. And, you know, God gives us the tools to fight this, but we could pray, God, take the psychological attack away from me. He's not going to do it, is he? It's for a purpose. And as, much, as painful as it is and as hard as it is, God wants us to apply his truth to that issue, whatever it may be. And in that way, he's drawing us to him so that we'll see him. And as long as we have these walls up between us and the truth about whatever it may be, then we're not going to see God. Uh, Don't let the lawless one that God has allowed to happen stress you out. That's a good one. Uh, The world's always going to be, the kingdoms of the world, the nations of the world are always going to be corrupt. This is the way it is. When they get uncorrupt for a little while, they always end up getting corrupted. History bears it out time and time again. Don't let it stress you out. Don't let it stress you out. Much worse is coming. So, yeah, take heart. It could be worse. It will be worse. The tribulation period is awful. There's six seals, six trumpets, and six bowls. Sorry, seven. What did I say six for? Uh, seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. When they're uh, when they're poured out, or when they're those those trumpets are sounded, things are awful here on earth. That's all in the tribulation. Those um, seals and trumpets and bowls are in the book of Revelation. They sequentially happen one after another. 
And in, even in the tribulation itself, it gets worse and worse. So things are going to get much worse. But it's God's will that it happened this way. This is not something outside of his will. Nothing is. God is sovereign. And here's the one we're going to uh, focus on today, and actually this week, is the Lord is going to destroy the lawless one. He's going to do that at the second coming. Now, the lawless one won't be here on earth until he doesn't have power until halfway through the tribulation. He, the first half of the tribulation, he rises to power. That's three and a half years. So the tribulation seven years. And the first three and a half years, he rises to power, but there's war. He has to war. There's three kings that he has to defeat, and he does. And then halfway through the tribulation, he takes ultimate power uh, over the whole earth, not just a part of it. The whole earth, he has power. And so that when he does that, that is the last Gentile kingdom. And I specifically say Gentiles because the Lord said the Gentiles are going to trod Israel underfoot or trod Jerusalem underfoot until the time of the Gentiles be complete. And that time is when the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation. So God is allowing this, this one final go at it, one final brouhaha of the Gentile kingdom, which is the evilest and worst and most corrupt and most immoral, and, and it will be allowed to do its thing. When Christ returns, all that comes to an end, and it will never happen again. It will never happen again, and that's important to understand. And then in time, the last part here is our escape. And this is how Paul would finish this section, is that we as believers have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And if we do, we'll escape the effects of what this lawless world wants to do. Really, what Satan wants to do to us is to deceive us. Get us to not see Christ. Get us to not live in the glory that is Christ, in the light of of God's plan for our lives. Uh, and he's trying to deceive us from that, have us all concerned or occupied with the wrong things. And if we, the way we do this, by faith in the gospel and continued study of the gospel, so we understand what this good news is that has been given to us and this Christ who is ours. And he has to change from some mystical story figure to a real person standing in front of you. You know, if someone were to ask, like that person right in front of you, do you see God and the Lord Jesus Christ in the reality of that tangible person that's right in front of you? Or is he more distant than that? And I think all of us in Christian, I mean as believers, we're still, we still, at the beginning at least, and for however long that lasts, that we have an idea of Christ that is kind of far away from us, kind of mystical maybe. And, you know, uh, you know kind of like a, a, a God that I haven't seen. You know. I don't know how, what, what good words to put it in. But uh, the, as time goes on, as what the truth does to us is the reality of him becomes such a reality for us. And that you'll know. God has made us new so that our hearts see him, recognize him, understand him. It's a supernatural process. Nobody knows how it works. It just works. The Holy Spirit is in us so that when the truth concerning Christ comes into your heart, and you're humble before it, that it 
has a real tangible uh, recognition in you. And that the world doesn't have. But the believer does. And to throw that gift away, being occupied with worldly, stupid stuff, is tragedy. It's just a tragedy. We mustn't do it. All of us do it. <laughs> we must stop you know, and minimize it. I, I don't think we'll ever be free of it. But we must minimize it as much as possible. Because you're to go through this life with Christ. He said he clothes you. He's in you. He builds his house with you. Yeah. It's supposed to be a very it's very real. Very real. So this week we're going to focus on this sixth one, which is sixth in the list, the second coming of our Lord. So in our passage, we have uh, Paul being somewhat redundant. And when we see that, we have to ask ourselves, without going too far, uh, why is Paul being redundant? Look at uh, verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, that word kata echo, it means to hold down. So restrains is good. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And the he there... Which is, uh, for me, the restrainer is God, whether you want to call it the Holy Spirit, the church, governments, the Roman Empire. And there's all kinds of theories on it. I, I leave that. I, I don't bother myself with that stuff. It's God, in whatever way he's using it, is restraining. But the restraint will be relieved at some point, And we know that this is when the tribulation starts in verse 8. And it's in the future. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Here's the redundancy. The Lord's going to slay him and bring him to an end. That's saying the same thing twice. Yeah? So there seems to be a reason why he would do that. And he may just be emphasizing it, that this guy's going to be dead on top of dead. Right? But also, this, these two Greek words, one for slay means to destroy or to kill. The other one means to uh, bring to an end or to stop uh, or to um, uh, take away. Uh, actually, it's not take away. It means to end or to stop. And I liken that to the fact that the process of the kingdom that this lawless one rules, which is the Babylon of the future, comes to an end. And it will never happen again. Right? Babylon's not going to be reborn. Right? We see this all throughout history. There's a coup or a rebellion or a revolt, and they assassinate the ruler, and the new ruler takes over, promises everybody things are going to be better, and they're, they're just as bad or worse. And what happens? Well, we killed the ruler, we replaced them, and then the evil just continued on. And the, the evil went on. And another regime came just doing the same evil stuff, sometimes worse. But what happens at the end of the tribulation is that when Christ kills the lawless one and ends the kingdom, that is it. It never comes back. It's over. And Christ starts his millennial reign. It's over. And that's important. 
So he kills him, he ends him, and then the second redundancy is by the appearance of his coming. And we have appearance, the Greek word is epiphania, where we get our word epiphany from, it means to shine forth. And then his coming is parousia, which is commonly used for coming, for being present. So we have a shining forth and a coming. They're both there. And one is the visible, you know, it's visible. And, you know, with coming, it's like, did I, what I just saw there, was that real? <laughs> you know, that kind of like I saw this shining forth, as Jesus said, flashing like lightning from east to west. That's how he's going to come back. Everybody's going to see him. And you'd say, well, is that real? And then here he is. Oh, yeah, that's real. That's the coming part. The parousia, yes, that is him, bodily, physically, visibly. And there's also the shining forth. And you see how this, this, so how would that apply to us? You have a shining forth of Christ, and you say to yourself, is that real? And I don't know about you, but I, I say it to myself all the time. Could that possibly be true? <laughs> you know, this... This life, this Christian life, this invisible life that is not visible. See what I did there? How smart I am? Invisible is not visible. Like, is it real? Is it tangible? And that, you and I have to come to a conclusion on. Every believer has to. No one can make that decision for you. No one can know it for you. People can say it. People can say that, I, yeah, I see the tangible Christ every day of my life, whether they do or not. And But the, the reality to you and to me, that's, that's up to us. And God tells us how that reality can become a reality. And his, it's simple. It's faith and obedience to his word. You can't just know the word academically. You've got to live the word to see him. Right? Where it says sacrifice, you've got to sacrifice. Where it says love, you've got to love. Where it says be good, you've got to be good. Where it says obey, you've got to obey. You can't say, well, I am a biblical scholar. You still don't, that's great, but you still don't see him if you don't live it. This is meant to be lived. And if you're not actually executing the reason for the word, how do you see the one who is the word? You don't. And, and nobody does. So, uh, the lawless one is revealed, then God removes the restraint, when God removes the restraint. And then Paul uses both of these words, appearance, which is shining forth, and also his coming, which is presence. Um, when he does this shining forth in this presence, you know, it's a visual, amazing event, shining, flashing from east to west, but also then it is the very tangible, visible, physical Christ in resurrection body on earth. And it's, un it's unmistakable. Uh, leading up to this is the Battle of Armageddon, or you call it... A some like to call it the campaign of Armageddon. Um, 
and for whatever reason, it's a stupid move that the Antichrist decides that he's going to amass his armies and destroy Jerusalem. Uh, how perfect to get all his armies together so that when Christ returns, he can kill them all. And uh, God is the one who motivates this gathering of his... He already rules the world. There's no point to doing this. But God motivates him to amass his armies to attack Israel, to attack Jerusalem, and to destroy all the Jews that are left. And they're in a perfect position for when Christ returns, kills them all. We see in Isaiah 63, the returned Christ covered in red clothes. And the prophet says, why are you covered in red? And he says, this is the blood of my enemies. So we see in our passage that he slays him. What does he slay him with? The weapon of choice. I think this is why I love this. That God could use anything, right, to slay the lawless one. What does he choose out of his entire arsenal of weaponry? He chooses the word. The Lord's weapon of choice is his word. In Hebrews 4.12, this passage you know well, right? The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, In our passage, it says that he slays him with the breath of his mouth, the pneuma of his mouth. Pneuma in Greek could mean spirit or breath. Here it does mean breath. This breath from his mouth is how he destroys him. And in Hebrews 4.12, the sword is the word of God. In Ephesians 6.17, the armor of God is that the word of God is uh, God's sword, the sword of his armor. So the sword of God's armor is the word of God. Uh, In Mark 4 and Luke 4, where the Lord is tempted in the wilderness, he uses the word of God to defeat Satan. Correct. Every time Satan tempts him, Jesus responds with Deuteronomy. In Revelation 19.5, the sword from his mouth strikes the nations. And when John meets him in Revelation chapter 1, it says that a two-edged sword comes from his mouth. When I was looking for pictures that might depict this sword and word depiction, you had to see all the ones that people had drawn with a, they drew a Christ with a, sword coming out of his mouth it just looks ridiculous i couldn't i was like i'm not using any of those it looks cartoonish it's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth the sword is the word so the breath of his mouth is his word it's not just him breathing it's the word and that word is powerful how powerful is the word of god in Hebrews 11.3, in Hebrews 11.3, it says that God prepared the worlds through his word. In Genesis 1, God spoke. Correct. He said, let there be light. He didn't say, let there be light, then make the light, and then show the light. He says, when he says it, it happens. Hebrews 11.3, he prepared the worlds by the word. In Hebrews 1.3, It says the Son of Man upholds all things by his word. The word for upholds means to bear up. It's like he's the foundation of the whole world. And he holds it by what? By his word. That is how powerful the word is. 
So, it's his weapon of choice. He could use anything. He speaks. So, here's the, picture. Here's the Antichrist. Wherever he is, he's either in Jerusalem. He's probably in Babylon. Babylon is the capital city. All kinds of shenanigans going on in that city. Corruption and greed and immorality and false religion and all kinds of stuff. And he's doing his thing and amassing his power. And then, here comes the word. The believers in the tribulation are going to expect it because prophecy prophesizes it to the day. It's seven years from the signing of the treaty with, with uh, Jerusalem, with Israel. And they know when it's going to come. The number of days is even listed. It's seven years from that day. They're going to know it's coming. But the ones who don't believe, to them it's a shock. And definitely. We see in Revelation 18 that they're, Babylon's destroyed. And the people, the survivors of that destruction are weeping over this beautiful city that they poured all their lives into and loved and got their money from and got their fun from and all this corruption that they did. And they weep over this destroyed city. So, this weapon, he gives it to us. We're told to put on the armor of God. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have the Word. And is it any wonder that in the attacks against the church, that is what is attacked? Many churches don't put their effort into the Word, uh, teaching it. They elevate programs and songs and, and worship service and singing and not teaching God's Word. Uh, a lot of argument over the interpretation of God's Word that have split churches, uh, emphasizing liberal um, uh, allegorical interpretations of the Word of God rather than literally just taking it for what it says. And, and when there is things that are, um, you know, that are kind of a mystery, just saying, hey, I don't know and you don't know, whatever your opinion is, it doesn't matter because none of us know. And that's fine. There's plenty of mysteries in God's Word that we can't really sort out with our finite minds. But yet, all of that has been attacked. And where has the true division in the church come from? The church at large has come from disagreements on the interpretation of Scripture. There's no need for that. I mean, unless the Scripture is written with some kind of secret code that only some can figure out. But that is not true. The Word of God was written for the common person. When when the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, that's common Greek, not even some fancy language. It's common language of the day. So the breath of his mouth, right? The sword is the word of God that created the world. So when he appears, he appears visibly and then chooses his word to do two things. To slay the man of lawlessness, and to bring his world and his ways to an end. He will slay him and bring him to an end. Both of these words, it's repetitive. Paul is being repetitive. He's going to slay him, which means to kill him, and bring him to an end, which would mean that this unrighteousness, this unrighteous government, which is 
you know, everything that this, the program of governments leading up to it have all been about. Even when they start off well, the, the, like America did, um, those who rise to power get corrupted by power. Those who rise to power make a lot of money and get corrupted by money. This fallen man is corruptible, to say the least. Is that unique to us? No, not at all. What's unique to us is this is the only nation in the history of nations that have started on an idea. We're the only ones that ever do that. It started on an idea. The idea was that men could rule themselves through representative government. That was a kooky idea in the, in the minds of many political scientists that happened before our founding fathers were here. And then God, some, you know, in whatever way he does, he put together a handful of geniuses when it came to that very concept. Virtuous, yes, I know, slave owners and all of that. Yeah, they, weren't per, they weren't gods, they weren't angels, but they were smart. And they pulled it off. It led to the most free and most prosperous country the world has ever seen. The strongest, the freest, the most, the most financially. And, and not to mention within that we have in America the most, the whole world. We're surround, we have two oceans on either side, so our borders are secure. The one at the bottom obviously is not. I'm not getting political here. I'm making a point. Deep water ports. We have, we have more than we know what to do with. Some countries don't even have one. We have tons of them. Natural resources, coal, gas, we have it all. We have it all. The breadbasket of the world in the Midwest, we have it. Climate, water, fresh water, all over the place. God set this up, in my opinion, to show the history of the world that even when you basin the most prosperous land in the world, and you make a government based on very sound, righteous principles of political truth, it still falls apart. Why? Because you can't do it without me. You can't do it without God. And, and come to the end of time here, or the end of the time of the Gentiles, is the man of lawlessness and his government. And it's the worst of the worst that has ever been. Worse than Stalin, worse than Mao Zedong, worse than Hitler, whatever uh, monsters of history you can think of in their monstrous regimes. And this one's even worse by miles. And that is the last one. Uh, so, this will happen and be over with. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff. I can't do this word. I even looked it up yesterday. I'm like, I always call it chafe. It's chaff. <laughs> Sorry, that's just a personal joke with me. you got to make yourself laugh if no one else will, or laugh with you. Uh, every evildoer will be like chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. Let's see in First Thessal uh, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter one, he comes with his angels in a flaming fire. Says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. See that? 
There's nothing left. The tree doesn't grow back. Every regime, evil regime that has been chopped down has grown back. And this is the last one. It's the last one to grow. And then there's the ruler of a kingdom that is eternal. We'll see this this week. And he's called a root as well. He's the root of Jesse. That's one of the titles for Jesus Christ. And that root grows. And no one stops its growth. And it will be the final, final, eternal kingdom. And if you're a believer here this morning, you are a member of that forever, that kingdom. (coughs) So look at uh, the contrast. When the Lord returns, the contrast between the judged, because this is what will happen as well. the, The world is judged. Uh, He puts an end, he kills the Antichrist, puts an end to his regime, and judges mankind. You can see that, of course, embedded in uh, Malachi 4.1 and in many, many other passages. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.6. Paul writes, For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. See that also in Malachi, other passages as well. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And he says here, uh, to repay with affliction, and in verse 7, to give relief to you. And... The contrast between the judged and the believers, the believers of this age in the tribulation are going to say, thank God he's finally here. They're going to call for him to come. And the contrast is amazing. And the contrast in time is amazing. Well, at least it should be. The believer who sees Christ, who walks with Christ, who knows Christ as Lord, is confident and happy and strong and, yeah, has his bad days. We're not saying he's Superman or Superwoman. But, you know, we're sinners and we mess up. But for the most part, strong, happy, and at peace, confident, having hope, smiling. Things go wrong. We smile at the future because we have confidence and hope in our Lord because we see him. You know, I, I know, uh, you know, whether others see him or not, and most of them don't. That doesn't matter. If I see him, that makes all the difference to me. And when I'm uh, fellowshipping with others who see him, there's a bond between us that Christ creates that is a bond of family that is forever. So the applications of this to us, first... And first and simply, the application to us of the second coming is that the deliverance of this world and the deliverance of us is physical. Now, we may say no, duh, but it's a, it is a thing where you know people will think, well, I'm, I'm thinking of eternity in kind of a mystical fairy tale kind of way. Or I'm thinking of this world. Is it really going to become a place of perfect righteousness and holiness. I mean, come on, look around. Is this a fairy tale land heaven is? It's just kind of like maybe it's a computer program. All right? We're all like in if you've seen the movie The Matrix, we're all just kind of like put into put to sleep and we're just dreaming of a 
white Christmas. We're just dreaming of a perfect place. No, this is physical and real as well as spiritual. The deliverance of this world will be real and physical by a real and physical Christ who is going to reveal himself visibly and physically. It's very important that we know that when he was raised from the dead that he was flesh and bone. He's physical. And the disciples thought, what? He was a ghost. But he said, touch me. Then he asked for food so he could eat in front of them. We assume that to be that he would show himself. I am man just like you, but I'm a resurrected man unlike you. And now you will be like me, physically resurrected in a physical world. That is called heaven, the new Jerusalem. Next, second, Christ's weapon of choice that he, he has given it to us, which is his word. I really, when I found this picture, I thought it was great. There's, there's dust on your Bible. Read me, please, read me. Don't buy that lie that only pastors are smart enough to understand reading the Bible. That is ridiculous. Of course, there'll be parts. Parts that are confusing to me, and I'm do all this work. I got to do more work to figure them out. But please read it. That's why we do a Bible reading. But I know we're we're busy, but I know we all have time. If I don't have time to read some, at least, and this, just ask yourself where you're spending your time. Do you really have the time, but you're not using the time? Because it's wonderful to read it for yourself. You alone with God and the Word. And not some guy in between. See, when you're here, it's you, me, the Word, and God. And, and you know, there's extra steps. But the pastors given to the church to, to lead them in the study of the truth. That's what we're here for. I highly recommend, just even a little bit, a psalm, something short. And it's no wonder. And see, his word is what brings him alive and makes him real. And, you know, we have to, it it has to become, as, as for the Lord to be real, the word has to be real, right? Like, if you say, well, say for instance, as somebody asked, somebody told me once not too long ago that he went to, he was involved with a different group of Christians than those who were in his prior church. And this person said, well, you know, I'd have conversations and I would say something. And then someone would say, well, why do you believe that? And he would say, he would start to say, well, pastor so-and-so said it. And then he'd have to stop and say, well, yeah, you know, I don't know why I believe that. And that's a great revelation because... You know, whatever the pastor's teaching you, we know that there's conjecture that can be made about certain things. I try to avoid it completely, as you know, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's some, each of us has to know or have a relationship with God's word as personal. Not that you memorized it. I'm not saying that, but that you know it for yourself. And I say, well, my pastor knows all that. That's not going to do you much good. 
It's no wonder that the main attacks against the church have been centered around God's word, the successful ones, where all the denominations came from or arguments over interpretations that should have never been. The neglect of it, oh, the liberal interpretations of it that I hear. I'm very fortunate to, to go to Corbin. At Corbin University, they're very conservative in their interpretation, which is great. Um, but, you know, we also get, I get to read all the liberal interpretations. It, like, completely deny miracles, even the resurrection of Christ, and just think the word is, uh, one, of the, one of the things that's out there now is that you can interpret the word any way you want because it's literature. And we can't really know the meaning behind it. We can't really know the reason why those men wrote it and what their intentions were when they wrote it. We can't know that. It's too long ago. So God's word can be interpreted by you any way that you want. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's how you get yourself into all kinds of trouble. Every believer is new humanity and dwelt by the Holy Spirit so he can know the truths in the Word of God. And when you hear it, you know it to be true. And there's, you know, a humble, spirit-filled, hearing the Word, hearing the truth, you come to know that it is the truth. And then you come to know Him. Third application, through humility and obedience to his word and the Holy Spirit, we can see Christ. This is, it's got to be, if not the best, one of the best benefits to Christianity in this world. You know, in all the other religions, no one's promising that you're going to actually see God. This side of heaven. But you're actually going to see his face. But I haven't met him. Yeah, the other day, uh, not too long ago, I had a horrible day. And um, it was because I let a bad thought get into my heart and I played with it a little long. And it ruined me. It got me depressed and low. And I I couldn't see. I prayed and I did all the things that I thought I should have done. But, you know, one of the... It was just a bad day. <laughs> Thank God for sleep. There's something about it, right? You wake up. It's like just like Lamentation says, "His grace is new every morning." It's like, wow, why, why was I so stupid yesterday? Well, whatever. Um, but you know, in looking back on it, it was quite a lesson. You know, a good lesson in the fact that a deception does what? A lie in your heart. What does it do? It gets your, it gets Christ to be fuzzy, or I don't mean fuzzy like hugging. <laughs> I mean like uh, cloudy. Right here, you are focusing on this wrong thing, and then the reality that is Christ all of a sudden becomes more like a shadow. That's not that you didn't know him. I was praying, I was asking him to take it away, but. You know, in hindsight, I should have done some other things. We should never allow it. But, you know, we're going to from time to time. Through humility and obedience to his word, we've got to live this word. If you're going to see him, you've got to walk the walk. you got to. You know, people who are, have an academic knowledge of Christ and have no love in their heart are addicted to things. Um... Thing, addicted to sins, 
sinful things, uh, have uh, no humility, have no love, isolate themselves, who hate and have anger. And I mean not just isolated instances, but this is their, pretty much their lifestyle. But they have a lot of academic knowledge of Christ. They're not, you're not walking it. You're not living it. And if you're not living it, you're not seeing Him. Look at 1 John 1, 1. 1 John 1, 1. Because we need both. We need to know Him and to see Him. First John one one. John writes what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is Jesus Christ. And the title Word of Life is makes this tangible to us because we have the word just like John did. The life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, if we pause here, we could say to John, yeah, but John, just as you say in the first line, you heard him, you saw him with your eyes, you looked at him, you touched him with your hands. I don't get to do that. But he says what we in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So we fellowship with John. We fellowship with his, well, what has been manifested to him concerning the physical reality of Christ. So by fellowshipping with John, we fellowship with the reality that Christ was to him. And that's why getting back to this title, Word of Life, is that through His Word, as God has given us this supernatural, inspired Word of God, that with our understanding of it, that we fellowship and will see the Lord. As if, just like John did, seeing Him, touching Him, hearing Him. Now look at 2.1. 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate means helper. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's an unlimited atonement verse. And so, you know, if, if we sin, we have an advocate. He has propitiated, meaning satisfied the justice of the Father concerning our sins. So God is satisfied with us and we're forgiven. Hence, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's righteous and just to forgive. We are forgiven of our sins. And when we confess and repent of them, we can leave them behind because of the blood of Christ. And then in verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. You see that? What if I, I know his commandments, but I don't keep them? Well, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, You're the house built upon the sand. And when the problems came, you fell down. And great was its fall, right? So he says, I'm writing you these, uh, sorry, uh, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been matured or perfected. 
By this we know that we are in him. The one who, one who says he abides in him, in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so in, in John here, he says, we want you to tangibly see him like we did. And you will when what? You know him. And how do you know him is when you keep his commands and walk in a manner that he walked. And see how important it is to live this life, the Christian life. I say, well, you know, if I live this Christian life, then I get all these rewards in heaven and blah, blah, blah. Or I say, well, you know, I'm a saved person. Why should I even bother? Right? I like my sins. I like my sinful life. Why should I even bother following the Lord? I'm saved anyway, aren't I? And if you are, you are saved. But you know what you're costing yourself? Seeing Christ. That's what you're costing. That's, that's the price you're paying for your sin that you love. I know it's hard to overcome. I do. Believe me, I do. But I also know it's a very real possibility and that God cures the things that rule us, that are not Him. He cures them. Just like when He appears, He kills them. He kills the Antichrist. When He appears to you in this manner, it's going to kill the things that are holding you back from walking with Him. He does two things. He slays Him and He brings His government to an end. Same with us. We, when the Lord appears to us, and I do mean in time that through His Word as we're seeing here that He becomes a reality that we see, it's going to kill the patterns of sin. You're not going to become sinless, but you're going to kill the patterns of sin and it's going to put an end to the desire for them. That government in your mind that is not of Christ. He's going to put an end to it. But he's got to appear. You and I have to see him. So go with me to Job. I, I Truly, I'm going to end in just a minute here. Go to Job 42, the very end of Job. Sorry, Job. Look at Job 42.1. Now this, I read through Job uh, uh, last week, and when I come to this end part, I'm like, and this is one of the benefits of being able, of not being able, anybody can do it. I didn't read Job all in one sitting, but I read it in like two sittings. And so what that meant was that I could kind of remember, <laughs> it's hard to do, the things that went on before, you know. When you take a, you pluck out a scripture and you say, you see it, and that's great. But if you don't see it in the context of the whole book, you can miss some things. And notice, here's Job answering the Lord. Now, the Lord showed up and said, Who is this guy who is calling me unjust? And God hands it to him. He gives him a very thorough, verbal, woodshed whooping. And then Job said to the Lord, in verse, four, in verse 1, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that, uh, that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me, as a humility. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. You see that? It jumped off the page to me. He said, I see you. I heard you before, but now I see you. And we may say, well, yeah, well, God showed up and talked to him. But if in the rest of the book, when Job states he has his, uh, his diatribes that he gives, all that God said to him, Job already said. Job completely acknowledged that God is the creator of all things and that God rules all things and that he's sovereign and so on. And when God showed up and gave Job his tongue lashing, God pretty much said the same things that Job had said before. But what is the difference? Job knew them kind of academically. But now, after God talked to him, God, uh, Job sees it. 3D. Right? I, he said, I heard you before, but now I see you. And that made all the difference to him. You see, God's sovereignty and, and, and authority and almightiness and all of that to Job was believed upon, but it still remained somewhat in the academic. But after he went through what he went through and then God showed up, he said, my eyes are open, now I see. I don't think he knew any more than he knew before. It just became real. When is it going to come real for us? That's the question. By not seeing him physically, and we will not until we die, or we're raptured, he is drawing us into an understanding of him that is deeper than the visible. And we will see him, yes, but... See him, as I said, I think I said it earlier this week, that if you saw a physical manifestation, even a theophany, a form of God, you would be enamored with it. You'd be so enamored by what you saw that you wouldn't really care what it's about. See, by God not showing us to himself, he's saying, know my heart, know my spirit, know my soul, know what I love, know what I hate. Come to know this, explore this. What gives me joy? Right? Does God get pleased? Doesn't that sound odd for someone who's immutable and never changes? Shouldn't he just be pleased with everything all the time? But yet God says, I've become pleased with you. That he becomes angry. That he works in time, like all these things. And God is saying, well, look, yes, I'm very complex. And I am not going to show myself to you physically, not yet. But until that time, come to know me, what I'm about, what I love, what I hate. And he gave us his spirit, his word, and I throw in here prayer. We, I, I've, through my own experience, but through the word of God also, that Prayer is our audible communication with the one that we can't see. That in learning about him should be explored. As I said, you won't know these things unless you live them. You're not going to know him unless you live them. That's, that's the cost. The cost of, of uh, not walking this life is not seeing him. 
That's too high a cost for us. You cannot know love or self-control or righteousness unless you live them inconsistently. If we choose to live them, he will shine forth to each of us like he has, like he will do to the whole world at his second coming. And then in us, the flow of evil and sin will dry up. It'll come to an end. I'm not saying sinlessness, but the appearance of Christ. Just as he puts an end to the government of the Antichrist, he will put an end to the government of your rebellion. In whatever area or way that you are resisting him. If you are, I should say. Not sinless, but the things that rule and master us that are not of him. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that you have provided for us the truth that sets us free. May we be set free by the truth that is before us. If, you know, at times we love to hear the truth, at times it hurts, at times it reproves and corrects. And for each of us, those times are different. And you say it, Father, through your Apostle Paul, that the Word of God is, that your Word is God-breathed, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof and correction and also for training so that we may be equipped to do the work that you would have us do, which is to live this life walking with Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Whew. You ever talk for a solid hour? You need, to, you need to rest and just be quiet. <clears throat> Let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for your opportunity to give. We thank you so much for those who can support this ministry. And uh, may we use these finances to your will and lead us to do that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. in prayer. Thank you, Father, for enabling us to be together and to enjoy your word, to know our Lord, to be challenged by your word, to see him, and how wonderful and expectant we are of seeing him. I ask that you put your blessing upon the teachings of the rest of this week, that we would all come to see him more and if we haven't to start the path that grows nearer and nearer to him our final moments are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in christ as their savior if you're listening to me and have not believed in christ i beg you to please consider the lord jesus christ he is the only savior of the world only in christianity only in him is salvation offered without cost it's not by works but it is by faith Your faith is holding out your hand to say yes. In other words, receiving what Christ has done in your behalf. 
He died for you for all of your sins while He hung on the cross. He was judged for the sins of the whole world. But He didn't remain dead. He was resurrected on the third day. And on that day, He uh, lived on forever. He is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven and He waits you. To believe upon Him, you will be saved. To believe upon Him is to have a future in heaven that is secure and eternal. So accept Christ by faith. You will be saved. We thank you, Father, for all you are. In Christ's name, amen.